Hey, it's Eric Newcomer with the Newcomer Podcast. This week, I have venture capitalist Pageman Nozad, whose venture fund, Pair VC, just raised an insane $432 million fund. Crazy because it is a pre-seed and seed fund that grew up from just a $50 million fund. So we talked about the fund strategy and also his amazing life story. Uh, I don't want to spoil it, but we talked about that in the beginning of the conversation. And then we get into the investments in Dropbox, DoorDash, and what he's got cooking next as an early stage investor. Give it a listen. Here's the conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the Newcomer Podcast. Very excited to get to talk to you. We were just talking about how you were once a journalist. Yes, Eric, thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, I actually love what journalists and reporters do. I grew up in Iran in, when I was 10 years old, revolution happened. And then when I was 12 years old, the war happened. So my teenager life was a combination of war and revolution. And I think I look back, it made me stronger who I am today. But I was a soccer player. I was a very good soccer player. Hmm. And I was playing for one of the biggest clubs in Iran. And the owner of that club had a sports magazine. He started a sports magazine. And I went to German school in Tehran, so I spoke German. One day he came to the training ground and he said, Pageman, you play the game. You have some magazines, German. Why don't you come and translate the soccer articles to Farsi? So I did mm. that, but I realized I can write my own articles. And I started to analyze games. So I made a name for myself when I was like 17, 18 years old and one of the kind of the senior journalists told me that we wanted you to host a radio sports show in Iran, which was the biggest one. So I was 18, 19 years old hosting LeBron James of my country and then Leo Messi of my country. It was like pretty amazing. So I think that's how my career started it. And I became a member of International Sports Press Association. But believe it or not, I went to Germany after I, I went to university. I dropped college. I served in the army, but I played soccer. So I decided to leave Iran and I went to Germany because my parents left Iran before me. Hmm. So in Germany, they gave me scholarship and playing soccer. But my brother who left Iran when he was 14, 15 years old, and he had this American dream and he was denied visa for a few years. And this was at a time that it was very hard to get visa to come to US, even engineers, doctors didn't get it. So one day he forced me to take a train to go to Frankfurt to go to U.S. Embassy. And I went over there and the counselor asked me, why do you want to go to U.S.? I said, you know, I want to go watch NFL, NBA, I'm a sports <laughs> reporter. And that was true. And then she told me, she said, I don't know why, but I wanted to see my country. She gave me oh, visa awesome. when I was 22 years old. I came home, nobody believed it. So I took a chance to come here with no plan. Was it denied. really that random that the visa person sort of got this was, No, well, she interviewed me for 45 minutes. She yeah. said, tell me about your life. I right. went through everything. So nobody believed that I got visa. So I We're, came to US. For the listener, we are going to talk about the 432 million fund, but your life story is so great that I do want to talk about it for a little bit yeah, before we thank get into you. angel thank investing you. and all the wonky. Anyway, continue. Yeah, I came, I think in May 1992 to right here. I didn't speak the language. I don't know why I came because I think I had a more comfortable life in Germany playing soccer. My parents there, you know, scholarship. And I arrived right here in San Carlos because my uncle lived here. So San Carlos is a town like a few miles from Stanford University. I didn't know what I'm doing. And I actually, I was in love with the girl back home in Iran. And I thought hmm. I'm going to lose her. So I started to call her from payphone. 
And at that time, you know, payphone was like four or five dollars per minute. It was no WhatsApp, no internet phone. So the seven hundred dollars I had was gone in a few weeks. So I had to find a job which doesn't require English language. So I bought a 1973 Chevy for five payments of 150 bucks. And I found a job in San Jose, which was a car wash. So my first job in America was washing cars. And I'm really grateful to the person who gave me the job. He was actually a former Iran's national team player who I knew. And, you know, he gave me this job, but you know, I was the best car washer the world has ever seen, Eric. <laughs> Nobody washed cars like me. How do you start selling rugs? Oh, yeah. So I ended up getting a job in a yogurt shop. My English improved in Redwood City, but I ran out of money. So I asked the owner of the yogurt shop if I can sleep in an attic. I think there's a photo of me out there that I used that attic as my home because I didn't have rent. So I was waking up every morning, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. and go to college studying. One of those nights, I saw an advertising for a rug gallery in downtown Palo Alto, right at university, hired salespeople. And, you know, I called because every Iranian thing, they know something about Persian carpets, <laughs> but they don't, like, including me. Like, every American has an opinion on NFL and NBA and baseball, but not necessarily to play the game. Right. And so the older gentleman who owned the gallery, he actually built an empire of businesses in Iran and they after revolution that nationalized his asset, he came here, started from the beginning. So he denied, but he said, you don't have a sales background, but I insisted that he should meet me. So the next day I went there, he hired me right on the spot. And hmm. As you know, I, I started to sell rugs again. I sold a lot of rugs. For how long? I sold rugs for 17 years, but I tell you the story. So for six, seven years into selling rugs, I realized... Persian rugs, you come and say, page one, I bought a home in San Francisco or Woodside and I'm looking for rug for my living room or dining room. So we start to look at rugs together. And then I said, Eric, I bring these carpets to your home so you can look at it in the house. So by hmm. going to people's home, I spend a lot of time with them because you know, showing 20, 30 carpets takes an hour, two hours. So I got to know them and I realized everybody is the founder of big tech companies, venture right. capitalists. These are... Doug Leone, John Doors of the world that you typically cannot see them, but I was hanging out with them and having barbecue while selling cars. Right. And I decided I want to be one of them. I thought this is an opportunity for me. And I was very lucky to have this access. And I became really good friends of them. I asked a lot of questions. This is late 90s when there was no podcast, no TechCrunch, no YC, none of these things. So founders had to go Sandwell Road Venture capitalists were not leaving their offices. Nobody was wearing jeans. It was a khaki and light blue shirts and it's very yeah. formal things. And I actually convinced the owner of the gallery to partner with him because I didn't have money. So we, we started this investment vehicle together. And I started to put a lot of networking events at the Rod Gallery. So once I remember, I brought the entire Sequoia Capital senior partners Mark Stevens, Doug Leone, and I invited 150 entrepreneurs, Persian food. It was just amazing. And who were you closest to or who helped you really get the credibility with that crowd? I think early on was like a lot of hustles. And I think some people who really took a chance at me was Doug Leone. You know, one day he came in and I went a Saturday to sell him rugs in his home. 
it was very obvious he's a better negotiator than me, Italian background, but we connected both really good salespeople. And I said, Doug, by the way, I can help you invest in some amazing founders. And, you know, he said, how? I said, yeah, I have access to the founders. You can meet them, including a lot of Iranian Americans, PhD at Stanford. Right. He said, okay, I'll come Monday morning to her office and on Monday or Tuesday. So I made my life mission that I'm ready. So normally we open <laughs> the gallery at nine. I was there at 5 a.m., made Persian tea, everything came. And I explained that this is my network and he listened to me. Yeah. And I said, you know, I, by the way, I think a lot of Iranian, Americans, PhDs are Stanford. I can bring him here. She said, okay, why do we get together? And then you invite them. I bring my team. So that was kind of the beginning of mm. some of the things that I didn't paid off because I think a few years after I called Doug and said, Doug, I met this incredible team, two guys out of MIT, a company called Dropbox. We should meet them. And, you know, Sequoia ended up being the first investor and then Dropbox went public. Did you make the investment or they invest and then you invest after? They were at the same time. Okay. So I committed to invest in the round. I put it together as actually, I mean, that's a different story that I called Doug and I took Arash and Drew to their office. And then I took Mike Morris to their apartment Saturday morning because Mike wasn't available Monday. And then Monday night, they told me they're going to be on call. And then after the part of the meeting, Samir Gandhi at that time was the partner of Sequoia. He went then to Excel. He's still at Excel. So Samir Gandhi, me, Arash and Drew went to this, I forgot, on Union Street, an Italian restaurant. And, hmm. you know, on the napkin, we made a deal to raise $1.25 billion at the pre-seed and I was an investor. How did you find Drosh? I met them at the YC demo day. Oh, okay. I met them at YC demo. But at that time, I think it was like 12 teams. And, you know, I, I looked at presentation. I said, I can use this product. I reached out to Arash. I said, you speak Farsi? And he said, a little bit. So we made it. And actually, Drew has a very funny story of when he came to meet me. He thought, this is, I'm a venture capitalist. And he came to a rock store and they thought they came to the wrong address. <laughs> but he looked at it. They said, oh, this is 353 University, but this is not. And they said, okay, we goofed it up. But we missed an investor who can invest. Right. And then, but they took a chance coming. I said, well, 353, but we are looking for page one. And they said, no, he's in the back door. And we had a beautiful boardroom with a lot of carpets off it. So the rug <laughs> gallery wasn't like regular rug gallery. It was like, I mean, it just was like a museum. Do See, founders get a rug if you get to do a big enough check? Or were there rugs part of the deal? Actually, no, no. <laughs> you try to can, sell a rug can, on the can, side or like it, maybe you want to? No, I, I'm still selling rugs. If you need rugs, I think you need some carpets for your home yard. Listen, I actually think it's interesting that, you know, founders used to go to this fancy office in Sandin Road. And then when they were coming to rug stores, one of the challenges was like, how do you prove that you're legit, that you have capital, you can help them? And, you know, I thought, okay, I can leverage this beautiful rug gallery as a way to introduce me, my culture and background. And, you know, Persian tea is very important in Persian culture. So I made sure that the Persian tea setting is beautiful. And it's not like you're putting a tea bag in the cup and the hot water. It was right. like a setting. And then later on, Eric, people told me, you know, I love coming to your office. You know, I open it up. You didn't ask first about my, you know, market and product. We talk about life and Persian tea. And it actually stuck to me that you can always use your differences as a strength. Totally. And, you know, I didn't know at that time people loved that. One of my fondest memories, one of my college roommates is Iranian. And he let me 
live with his parents for a summer when I was working at a newspaper in Florida. It was the Sun Sentinel. So I would have oh. Iranian tea, you know, every night. It was <laughs> great. great. Was, I miss yeah. it. Anyway. Anyway, so we started to make investment. Obviously, we made like terrible investment until, you know, you know, I became very fortunate to meet some amazing entrepreneurs, including Dropbox and then Soundhound and App Loving and Gusto. So I actually made money. I started to do solo investment in my own capital. And I built the portfolio of angel investing. Money from the rug business? Or? No, I made money through Dropbox and other companies that okay. they sold. So I started to do solo investment around 2009, 10. I realized I'm an angel investor and I look at the cap people. There are few funds. I put a few hundred thousand dollars, but you know, founders are left alone right after raising the initial capital. And I felt that there's an opportunity to build an institution to serve founders day zero. The question was, can I walk to a room full of founders and claim I'm your best partner at that stage? And the answer was no. Although I had a great track record, I knew everybody, people knew me, but I never built and shipped product. I never started a startup. And I felt, and I knew in order to be a very successful institution, I need a partner who has been entrepreneurial. So I reached out to my current partner, Mar Hershenson, who we know each other for 23 years. It took me four years to convince her. So I didn't talk to anybody else. The way I know Mar, I funded her husband's company, Danger, in 2000, which he started with Andrew Rubin and later on became Android. And then I invested in Mars' second company in 2003, which is sold that. So we became really good friends, family friends. We got to know each other, both immigrant. Anyway, Mars, every time I went over to talk to her and she says, you should start the fund with me. And see, she said, Fishman, you're crazy. You're not venture capitalist. I'm not venture capitalist. I don't know how you do it. Then I changed strategy in 2012, late 2012. I said, okay, that's okay. Come and meet entrepreneurs with me at Cooper Cafe in downtown Palo Alto. Mm. And then she came and provided advice and she was hooked. A couple of months into it, she was full-time meeting entrepreneurs. So I won. So we started Pair in 2013. What was the first fund size? 50 million, five zero. And I tell you the story about it. But, you know, we are kind of yin and yang. I'm a college dropout. She's a Stanford PhD. I never worked for the tech company. She started three tech companies. She has... 14 patents, I have zero patents, but I have none of scars on my body. I lost so many of my investment, but I, I saw companies from garage all the way to IPO. So we started the firm and the goal was and is to build the best performing seed fund ever existed by partnering with entrepreneurs in earliest stages. So fast forward 10 years, today, you know, Pair is a top 5% performing fund in the world based on the what, data. Yeah, what, uh, give us some numbers. You know, we have some savvy people. What can you say on the return? I can't say, fund? but fund one, the DPI is top 5%. So you're in you charge. Can you, can say, you can say whatever you want. No, you I guys can't. together. You gotta, <laughs> well, you yeah. can find it out. So we had two IPOs fund one, DoorDash and Garden Health. But we have other companies in that fund that are going to do really well. And Gusto. Aurora Solar Branch, Affinity, and a few others. And then we raised series of funds over there. But today, you know, our investment team have started and sold 10 companies through Cisco, Instacart, Zynga, Yahoo, a bunch of entrepreneurs. In addition to investment team, we built a platform. One of the things we built that is very unique, we built a recruiting agency inside Pair. So we hired Matt Binbaum, who was the head of global talent of Instacart. And he took Instacart from 300 to 3,000 people. 
he joined us 14, 15 months ago, and he hired three other senior recruiters from SpaceX, Brex, Uber. So we have a team of four recruiters on our payroll that if you come to pair, we hire your people. So that's one of the additions. So we can talk about it later. Let's talk but, about but, the platform thing. Yeah. I want to talk about like yeah. fund size and all that first. My first question is honestly, when did you realize, you know, now you're a true like Silicon Valley insider or like, I mean, certainly by the time you're raising, you know, 400 million fund, you're like, you're on the inside or when did it really felt like, oh man, I've made it here and I'm part of, you know, Silicon Valley. You know, I actually think Silicon Valley opened its arms to me without really judging me 20 some years ago right. when I started to be an angel investor. Yeah. Like think about it, that you are an Iranian-American immigrant, you are a college dropout, you sell Persian rugs, and you claim you want to help entrepreneurs. It's just like unheard of. So I actually am so grateful to be part of this community. I think when I was able to make some investment, including early on Dropbox, I felt I'm playing a role here. So it gave me a lot of confidence. And after that, I invested. And I won many kind of partnerships with entrepreneurs that was very hard to get in, like including Gusto, Garden Health. This was like oversubscribed rounds early on. People wanted to invest and I was able to partner with entrepreneurs. So that gave me a lot of confidence to do it. But fast forward, when we started the fund, it wasn't easy to raise the first fund because people say, oh, a rock salesman turned to be angel investor <laughs> and then former founder wants to start a VC firm. That's maybe a sign of bubble. But, you know, I think one of the advantages Mar and I, we had were we were not from the industry, like venture capital industry. So we came and looked at the industry and we made changes and we built the firm we wanted built for founders. And we built a lot of different products and programs and community that still is very unique to the venture capital community. And we can talk about it more. So that was one advantage, but raising the fund wasn't easy. We actually, first, I thought we can raise 10 to $20 million because I thought no one gives us money. So we raised money from my network and Mars network and few institutions really took a chance on us early on. Anybody which, you can mention or? Yeah, I think few firms, they came in, Industry Ventures, University of Chicago Endowments, which is one of the top. Oh, God, they're great. Industry did lower cases first fund, didn't they? Wow. And then University of Chicago, which is kind of unheard of. And then we have an amazing endowment in the state of Hawaii called Kamehameha. That's pretty amazing. Where then a few others came on, like True Bridge and so on. And then founders and CEOs who helped us grow. And then the model established then after... 50 million, we raised 75, and then 160, and then 400. But the focus and model has not changed since day one. So this bigger fund doesn't mean we want to write a $10 million Series A checks. I think they're very good at finding entrepreneurs early and help them to get to product market fit. Well, I assume the DoorDash experience was part of the fund size decision, or I'm curious, because... I mean, it was a company that raised so much capital along the way, right? It wasn't a DoorDash story because DoorDash was happened many years ago. I believe we reached our own product market fit after 10 years. That's what we want entrepreneurs to do. So if you look at today, Pair, we have a very differentiated playbook to find entrepreneurs before anybody else. And I can explain it how it is. And then we build the investment team we can partner and understand what does it take to build products, and then we build the platform. The size of the fund is all about doubling down on what we are good at data, which is investing pre-seed and seed and follow on. So this fund is about doing more of what we have been doing, 
and writing bigger checks and pre-seed and seed. So what percentage is like for the pre-seed and seed investments and what percentage is for doubling down on them as they raise the yeah. funding? So our initial check is always pre-seed and seed, but we do follow on and we keep over 50% of the fund for follow on. But that 50% is not a distributed capital. So basically right. it goes to few the companies. The good ones get the 200. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that has been always the model from fund one to here. So we keep over 50% and we double down on the winners. Like for example, DoorDash, we invested in seed series A and series B, which like series B valuation was around $600 million. At the time that it wasn't really, really obvious that food delivery, it's a category right. and people doubt that. And then we had a $50 million fund, which was scary to write. We wrote, actually, this is public data. We wrote $1.4 million checking that round that even some of our LPs got scared that why are you investing this much at the $600 million? But, you know, when the exit happens at $50 billion, it was kind right. of a no-brainer, but not right. at that time. How did you find DoorDash? We met them at the White Sea Diamond Day. And I think I learned from White with, with the DoorDash founders stand that they're the only investor that invested in DoorDash who came to demo day. <laughs> when we met Tony, it was like, you spent time with Tony and the team early on. It was very obvious this is an outlier team. And we went to their home. They had a home and office. And then on the whiteboard, then they explained the model. But my partner, Mark, went on University Avenue, talked to restaurants. And ask about DoorDash, and everybody said, "Yeah, we love Tony because he delivers the food himself and he picks it up." And yeah, so it was kind of our due diligence there. We brought SoftBank to do the round. Jeff House and Bold was introduction mm. from us. And when did you raise this actual the four hundred plus million dollar? We raised the majority of the fund last year, and then we started deploy capital fourth quarter. It just did the last closing recently. I mean, the meme out there is that it's, you know, a tough time. And I feel like the legacy venture funds want to say, oh, all the new investors in particular are going to be challenged. I mean, you're not that new anymore, but I don't know. What was your read on the LP limited partner sort of environment? Well, I think you're very lucky to have some exceptional LPs who have seen the growth and strategy in the track record. I think that the reason I think we could have raised this one was the model made sense to LPs and the strategy, the team, the focus, and the opportunity. I think when you do pre-seed and seed, you're immune to the public market. So there are always entrepreneurs out there raising right. cap money. So and if you establish an exceptional brand and deal flow and the team, you can partner with some amazing entrepreneurs early on. With the steady pace. So we have never been a seasonal investor. The last 10 years, we just focus on one thing. And the other one, what I learned through this fundraising, some of the larger LPs who have not been investing in pre-seed and seed, they realized this is the category they should have in their own portfolio. Many of them, they're investors in multi-stage firms and they think right. pre-seed and seed is covered by them. But now they're looking for a specialist that they can do that. So I think it's a combination of our focus, strategy, obviously track record, and the appetite people have for preceding seed funds. Okay, so transitioning like to the platform strategy in some ways and like the services you provide. You know, we talked about Dropbox and DoorDash. You found 
out of YC. I'm curious what your view on, I mean, Pear has started doing its own accelerator now, right? Or am I mistaken on that? And like, just how do you think about, yeah, other accelerators? I mean, you know, I feel like YC, people are constantly in the panic that prices are too high. Now YC itself is writing these huge checks, like certainly seems hard for pre-seed unless you find it before. Yeah, I'm just curious on your view on accelerators. Yeah, I think well, obviously YC has done an amazing job and we see Y Combinator as a kind of a source of companies for us to partner with them. We have our accelerator, which we changed the name because we do a lot more than accelerator called PRX. It's a boost camp for pre-seed investments that we do. So we do it twice a year, 10 to 15 companies come to PRX and the size of the investment is anywhere between two hundred fifty thousand to two million dollars. They spent four months, four and a half months with us. We matched them with senior partners. Founders really like it because the cohort is really small, and almost all of our companies when they come, they haven't raised capital before. It's just like day zero they start, and then we have a demo day they come and present. But we have had great successes and it's growing. We had Viz.ai, which is a billion dollar company, Noble Credit, Silas, Affinity came to it. We do this twice a year. We match them with not the investment team, with the platform team also. And in addition, we have the seed platform. I think Accelerator, I just think in the venture capital business, there's not one model that works. You can be Y Combinator very successful. You can be Sequoia Capital very successful. You can be Benchmark very successful. Three different firms, three different yeah. strategy, exceptional performances. And I think we have picked our own strategy to what we are good at and what we do. And as long as you become the best at what you do, there's something magical happens. How would you articulate that strategy? Or what is sort of most unique about your approach today? Yeah, I think being a solely preceding seed focused build a machine for sourcing. So 50% of our company is now founded by students. And this company is now worth over $15 billion. So when I'm saying $15 billion, at the time that we invested, there were still students in the class. And we have a team working around it. We have multiple programs. And then 50% of our companies are people who are non-students. They build programs <laughs> for it. One of the programs that we built, we're very proud of it, called Female Engineer Circles. This is a program we started two years ago. For female engineers who are leaving big tech companies, they have an idea. It's a free program. It's highly selective. Every batch is around 30 female engineers. We match you with mentors. We bring who is who in tech. It's a sense of community. You can go raise money from anybody you want to. Over 30 companies have come out of last three batches. Sequoia is investor, Anderson Horowitz investor. We invested in seven of them. We do the same program for PhDs and product managers. So at any given time, we build this community that go over there. But universities, they're very well known. I can say that we are number one brand in the world inside universities that we find mm. entrepreneurs and we help them grow over there. We have a program called Garage. We select top technical students from Stanford. And it's again, free program for nine months. You have access to us. We come and we help you build products, not company, but naturally People start companies there. So one of our companies, Affinity, come from that and few others. I have a reporter intern starting later this summer who's a Stanford undergraduate. And one of the things I've tasked her with is, yeah, to get a sense of the vibe of like, I don't know, the Stanford undergrad startup scene. I mean, is it? I'm curious, like to do some of the reporting for like, I mean, I feel like the Evan Spiegel days, you know, it was like, oh, Stanford undergrads 
where sort of the obsession, are you seeing still a ton of great startups come out of the, the undergrads? Now? Yeah, I, th- I think Stanford, I think it's maybe the, in terms of versus number one in, in terms of any data, but, you know, Berkeley's there, right. Harvard, MIT, and so on. But no, there, I think there are, there, I mean, we see an amazing quality of entrepreneurs across different campuses, Stanford, the highest in terms of, but there are some amazing, like you go to UC Berkeley, it's an incredible right. group of entrepreneurs going over there. We actually have a business plan competition every year and we give every campus, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars for ideas. And we see incredible entrepreneurs over there working on an amazing ideas. Sometimes it doesn't work, but they're very committed to the entrepreneur and we want to build a relationship long term. I, mean, I, I don't have the numbers, but it feels anecdotally like there's a founders are older sense. I mean, part of it is just that the dominant figures in the tech conversation are some of the same people. So it's like Mark Zuckerberg is older now. The Google founders are older. But I feel like, you know, when I first started covering Silicon Valley, there was much more of a sense that the like the young founders were sort of super powerful in their 20s. But it, I don't know. It, does it just like that today or am I crazy? No, we don't have that view. We don't look at the age, background. We look for founders who are committed to be entrepreneur. They have a deep understanding in the market. They have insights about the customers that other people don't have right. and differentiated product and technology. And so that matters. So I'll give you an example. We just invested in a company called Hazel. There are two, three sophomore students from Stanford. We're using AI for realtors. It's just very simple. So they're actually using AI to eliminate 80% of the tasks that realtors do. That's one thing. We just gave a term sheet to the very senior team out of Google. So it just right. doesn't matter the age or background. We don't say if you're young, you cannot build the company or you have to be the second time founders. Some of our founders, most of them, they haven't put a deck together. But some have built products at large tech companies. You're saying you have an undergrad focus. You're like trying to have great coverage of college campuses. Or- you know, in fact, when I say 50% of our companies are started by students, majority of them are grads and PhDs, business schools and PhDs. We do have we do have undergrads, but you know, there's this notion when you talk to people, especially investors, that you talk about right. students, everybody thinks they never worked before. But we have funded students who work for Goldman Sachs and Uber yeah. and then PhDs who come to business school. Yeah. So it's a combination of both. There's a sense that I mean there I mean the data shows this like seed and pre-seed prices have been much more resilient than later stage rounds. Like do you feel like the prices are gonna drop and match everything in seed and pre-seed or how do you think that plays out and how do you react to that when there's sort of this mismatch in the pricing levels that precede and seed versus later stage? Yeah, I think prices across all stages have come down, less so on precede and seed, except that you have a very senior AI right, yeah. team. and AI not is a totally AI different conversation. Gets fi- yeah. It's a lot of hype. So they forget about that. But I think there's still stable. We saw one of the changes I've seen is not the prices is like the party rounds are disappearing. Rounds where it used to come in 48 hours. You didn't have time to even get to know the founders. And I think it's getting healthier that you have time to get to know founders. Obviously, some of the rounds coming together is still in 48 hours or 72 hours. But I think there's a chance that you can spend time with that, which is very, very healthy. I think Series A is becoming really hard. But again, if you have a true product market fit and a strong growth, 
still series A, you get a competitive term sheets from VCs. And if you have a negative unit economics, it's just almost impossible to raise series A. Do you ever do series A's for your companies or are there ever cases where you do series A? The entry check is not series A, but we invest in series A and B sometimes beyond, but we don't write a series A check. The initial investment, yeah. the first check we right. write, it's right. either pre-seed or seed. And then we follow on. But the initial check we write, right. it's but never If you have a seed company you really like, it's not raising, would you lead the Series A or it needs another lead? No, it's not an expertise. I think at Series A, once you reach product yeah. market fit, you need a group of people, investors, who have seen growth from the product market fit, just grow, scale the team. That's not expertise. We can still help companies, but that's not the core value we bring to, to Series A. I think there's a strong argument that part of the reason prices didn't fall harder in seed and series A is that, you know, these multi-stage funds shifted some of their investment early stage because they wanted to stay active. And I don't know, how do you respond to the competition or what do you make of having Sequoias who you are introducing to companies or Andreessen's like in these early stage rounds? Yeah, we see these firms that you mentioned and some other seed firms looking at the same competitive. What we tell entrepreneurs that, you know, we live and breathe pre-seed and seed. We are specialists in that stage and we built an investment team and we built the customized platform for that stage. And this is our track record and you can reference it and you can see it. But at the end of the day, it's the entrepreneurs who make the decision at the end of the day. Um, I actually think if our business was restaurants, you can go to an Italian restaurant and have salad, pasta, pizza, branzino, and they're great. But if you want to eat only pizza, the best pizza <laughs> is at the Cornet Pizza Shop that the guy comes and makes dough every day and in and out. Those are the best pizza. So Pear is the pizza shop right. of the Italian restaurant. I love it. That's hard, hard to argue with that. If you are the specialized you know, pizza shop for early stage investing, like what are different services that, that these early stage companies want and that you provide? Sure. One is the ability to help entrepreneurs navigate through the market they want to go and making sure that they pick the right market, is a large enough market, and they find the first 10 customers hiring the right team and helping them build the product. And we actually have a playbook written and even if you go on our website, we explain it how we help our customers. So that's that's where we help. And in addition, I think ten years ago when Eric, you were raising money from Payne, he said, Page one, I need engineers. I was calling my friends and network and I didn't know how to recruit. But now you come to us and I give you to the talent team and they give you data. Last two quarters we hired mm. 30 people for our portfolio company, which is for you know, multi-stage firms, they have recruiting team, big ones. Not many, I don't think any seed firm has anything in the capacity that we have as senior full-time helping our companies. And I think they're building the same thing for go-to-market and we're saying building the same team for software and engineering and so on. So we are focusing on that, we're expanding our services. And, you know, what, what, one of the things I actually think, given what I told you early on, because Mar and I, we came as an outsider, we look at the venture capital board from outside and we are building a firm for founders, what they want. And constantly we come with the new ideas. So for example, 
the incubator or pair X are, was kind of what we think. And, you know, the idea of female engineer circle came about like thinking about the communities and we came about this. We're actually, and now we're just going to announce a pair X for AI that two of my partners are running it. So specific for AI companies, uh, deep technical founders who are building, solving real problems. So I think we, we treat pair as a startup with the core product. The core product is partnering with entrepreneurs, helping them build companies. But around that product, you always want to innovate and come up with the new ideas. Will it remain two core general partners or with this bigger fund? No, we want to build the firm that outcasts Smart and I. We're actually inspired by Sequoia, Greylux of the world that they have a generational partner. So this fund, we have two GP, Mar and I, but we, we hire people with the hope that they become and run this firm many years from today. In terms of like types of companies, you know, like what percentage AI investing are you doing right now? Like where are the areas where you as a firm are most excited to invest today? Or do you think that way? I mean, you're, you're saying you're doing a... No, I, I, we right. are very much founders driven. Obviously, we believe AI revolution is for real, but at the same time, it's so much hype. So AI companies are twofold. They're one, that there are people who are coming with exceptional innovation in this space and they're building long-lasting companies. There are other companies that they are AI-powered, like they're using AI to in legal or tax or, you know, consumer businesses and SMB. But our belief is we want to see the future through the eyes of entrepreneurs. So we don't have a set sector to look at it. Obviously, activities in AI these days, it's tremendous. But we look at healthcare, consumer, fintech, climate tech, and so on. One of the things worth mentioning, Eric, that Pair is a generalist firm, but we have partners with deep knowledge yeah. and expertise in each sectors. For example, uh, Arpan Shah was the founding engineer mm. of Robinhood, and he sold the company to Plaid, is leading our fintech. Our biotech investments is led by Eddie al who took one of our biotech companies public mm. as a head of is dev and he has a PhD in buying from MIT. So we have the deep experts in the next sector that can have help. Have you found portfolio. any former rug salesmen to come in or how do people replicate that? Nah, like, nah. you know, like how I feel like it's heartwarming to hear the story of somebody who really like fought in, but then you go to hire, you still like, oh, let's get the PhD or whatever. You know, have you found other cases where you've been able to identify somebody without the sort of conventional background and what sort of the, what, how do you do that? In our team, we have never hired a former investor. Everybody in our firm has been a founder and operator, and they come and they get trained. So that's kind of the culture that we have at Care. I look for myself into people, that people who are optimists and everything is possible. I think if you set your heart and mind, you can do these things. So that DNA, I'm actually very excited to meet people either hiring in, in-house or partnering with entrepreneurs. So part of my job is just getting to know the founders early on. Why you? Why now? There's not much we can do because there's no customer to call. Most of the time, there's no product, maybe prototypes. It's getting to know the founders and the ability to explain the market and the vision is very important when you do precedency. I want to go back just to the fun size thing for a second. I mean, with DoorDash, like, there was pro rata like that you could have exercised if you had more money. I mean, obviously you were saying before that you already made the tough call of investing at like 600 million. There were lots of tough calls along the way where people were agonizing 
about the prices and there was also like a lot of dilution. How do you look back on the pro rata, obviously knowing how it all works out and, and with this new fund? So I think it goes back to the relationship we built early on with the founding team. So the reason we invested in the Series B of DoorDash wasn't because we get so much information from the founding team and the strategy, who they are, and the relationship we built with, obviously, Sequoia and John Doerr came on board. If we had more money at that point, we would have invested in future rounds. By the way, we are maybe the only kind of the smaller funds that we never sold any shares mm. to IPO. I don't know who sold, but we didn't. And imagine a $50 million fund. Oh my God, that that would, I would have sold. That's agonizing, have, yeah, terrifying. We could, we could have sold at 2 billion, 5 billion, 10 billion, 20 billion. Long right. before going public, we could have returned the fund right. multiple times. If we didn't do it. You didn't sell anything? Nothing. Not once. <laughs> were your LPs share. like trying to kill you or like? Uh... They were asking questions, but we were very firm that we're not going to sell it. And, you know, we obviously exited that right. at the huge valuation and they've been public. But it tells that how we run the firm and how we look at companies. Even, you know, we have a company called Vanta, which is a leader in compliance software. We oh, let- Vanta? Yeah, Vanta's like a great sponsor of this yeah. podcast. We love Vanta. I had Christina on my oh, yeah, second yeah, I saw episode of my then, original yeah. cast. So yeah, yes. Vanta fan. And then uh, Series A was done by Sequoia and last year crafted at right. multi-billion dollars valuation. He wrote the biggest check ever from Pair into hmm. last round, which was normally yeah. you don't do it. I feel like the, I don't know, students of seed fund economics would just say, you know, like a bigger fund is just so much harder to return. The beauty of a $50 million fund is that one great investment can, you know, more than return the fund. Do you worry that with a $400 million fund, you could land like a historic investment and still, you know, doesn't mean you're going to get top returns again. Or how do you think about what needs to be done to return a $432 million fund versus a $50 million fund? Yeah, it's a very good question. I wake up every morning and I think we're going to go out of business <laughs> by end of the day. So that's the mentality. It doesn't matter. You have $400 million or $4 million or $4 billion. So I think I want to stay on my toes and my team that DoorDash performance or garden health doesn't mean anything about fund four that's gone so there's no guarantee if you don't perform fund five might be very hard to raise Uh, so we need to prove this model works so with this fund we're doing more pre-seed investments we're going to do 20 to 30 pre-seed investments and 10 investments in seed 10 to 12 so more companies a year one of the things we realized fund three we do an amazing work to create a deal flow. And we were meeting, you know, senior entrepreneurs who were raising three to five million dollars C and we were not able to lead those rounds in writing two, three, or even four million dollars. So this fund allow us to lead those seed rounds, which we already have done in fund four and they're all in stealth mode. So it's a combination of doing more of what we have been doing. And, you know, writing bigger check in some cases and own more of the companies. And yeah, I think at the end of the day, this business, it's all about your outliers. I think few companies can return, but I think now we can own more of the companies early on and more shots at the goal with the bigger team and the platform team and established brand. Having a bigger fund doesn't mean anything. 
other than a bigger responsibility to return if you want to be a top performer. How easy or hard is it from the inside to tell which of your portfolio companies are winners? Or like both for yourself, and I'm curious, I'm sure you've looked at other firms, like the judging the sort of, I don't know if you call them opportunity or whatever, like yeah. carry on investments, like what's the track record on those things? Like have you doubled down on the wrong ones? Yeah, or? the first sign is the quality of the people that the team hmm. is hiring. Once you see exceptional people either in doing sales and marketing, joining a team, it's a very, very good sign. Historically, if you look at data, most of the companies, the quality of the people who invest with Sukum Series A, it's a combination of what type of talent this founding team had attracted early on, and then the type of the investor you can bring in Series A. It's, hmm. it's a big indication to me. There are some exceptions. Companies that pick up, they can raise Series A from top tier VCs, they come back. But, you know, the combination of the quality of your hires and investors is always telling. Cool. Well, I, I think this might be my last question, unless there's anything I miss. What are the next DoorDashes? Or tell us like, about a couple of fun portfolio companies that maybe aren't on people's radar that get you excited about where Silicon Valley is right now. If you know the, the next DoorDash, tell me I'm going to go anywhere in the world they are. <laughs> um, no, I, I think our companies are... We invest so early, it takes like three, four years to right. be where they are. So I think our funds are very young. But I told you about fund one that I think is is doing really well. Fund two, we have some great companies, Banta included. We have a company called Xylus. It's two professors from Duke who actually went to pair XR incubator that have found a way to detect hmm. cancer very early. And then we have Nova Credit. What's Nova Credit? Nova Credit is actually for immigrants bringing your credit hmm. score to America. They're growing very fast. And then Fund3 right. is so early to talk about. But we have we made some great investment in Fund3, great companies, including some AI companies. But it just, right. I don't know. Well, I'm not saying which ones are winners, but you know, you got, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's yeah. all over the places. We just, one of our companies is going to announce a Series A that when we invested, there were still students at Stanford. And believe it or not, these people are building the operating system for weather around the globe by sending balloons. It costs only huh. 300 bucks, which is crazy. I mean, when we invested, it was like a science project. So today, when hurricane is going on, they send the plane inside up there to take kind of data, and it costs like $60,000 per flight. They built the balloon for 360 bucks, send it out there, does hmm. the same thing. And now the idea is just sending all these balloons around the globe and collect all the data. And then weather data, which is very valuable for hedge funds, for farmers, and so on. Just what's the company called? Windborn. So, did I know this company? No, but one of the most difficult things when you do pre-seed, it's can you detach from your belief and see the world through the eyes of entrepreneurs, and then truly hmm. believe in that. That's why not many people invest in Airbnb and Uber of the world because people have set up mind. And venture capitalists, they believe they're very smart. They know the world. But I think entrepreneurs know the world. They're the ones who are building future. We're just servicing them. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was awesome. I really enjoyed it. Eric, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. That was my conversation with Pageman Nozad. I'm Eric Newcomer. This has been the Newcomer Podcast. Thanks so much to Riley Kinsella, my chief of staff, Tommy Heron, our audio editor, Young Chomsky, for the theme music. 
like, comment, subscribe on YouTube. Please rate, review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, most importantly, become a paying subscriber to the Substack at newcomer.co. We really appreciate your support. See you next week. Thanks so much. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.